on episode 19 of The Insecurity Show. We discuss the newest heartbleed vulnerability and how to build up an information security program. Visit our website at in-security.org for show notes, the latest episodes, and to leave comments. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. And send us email at feedback at in-security.org. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. So what is news, sir? What's, uh, how's, how's your week been? My week's been very interesting, as has a lot of other people, I'm sure. Really? How was your week? My week was actually pretty good. I played a little bit of hooky. Um, and then my sister's husband is in town. So I was entertaining him or being entertained by him. We were hanging out for friendship. It was fantastic. Usually that's called a brother-in-law. We may have built wizard staffs. Oh boy. I've heard about that. Mm, it was fantastic. So what about you? What's, uh, what's new and exciting other than news? Yeah. The news is what's been keeping me busy for the last few days. First off, do you have any follow-up? Follow-up? Yeah, I've got some follow-up for you. For any of the eight or nine episodes that we might be following here? Right. Um, so we've got a, an episode in queue uh, that I've been quote-unquote editing for the past month or so on cryptography, uh, which actually ties in with this topic at hand that we'll get to in a second. So just to let you know, we're prioritizing this episode over the other four episodes we have yet to publish um, for the simple reason that this is timely based on news right now. And uh, the more people can understand what's going on in the news, they can relate it to their life and, you know, see the value in this. Also, the better people will be able to react. Sure. Sure. Why not? So let's discuss news. Do you have any do you have any news this week? Is there anything that is big and pressing and urgent that we should maybe discuss? Yeah. Uh so there's two items in the news that are somewhat noteworthy. The first one is merely that Windows XP's become end of life. So unless you're a large company willing to shell out a ton of money, there's no more patches. Uh, that are going to be produced for your version of Windows XP. Which means that the malicious people who have been holding on to their uh, found zero days won't be publishing them probably for a few months still, just to test the waters and make sure that Microsoft's not going to do emergency patches. My expectation is that they'll put out a minor vulnerability to make sure it doesn't get patched and then drop a deuce. Do you mean a doozy? Drop a doozy. Either or. I think they both kind of work. I think they both work in their own sort of horrible way. Right. And then, so that was the, you know, everybody saw this coming kind of problem, but not enough people were getting off of it. I mean, the path is clear off of that one, right? The huge news as of a couple days ago is that OpenSSL, which runs basically two-thirds of the secured websites, the HTTPS that you go to, um, there are vulnerable versions of that that make all the security that you think you're getting with the HTTPS and the lock icon and all that good stuff just go away. So essentially, it's a false sense of security. Is this, to the best of your knowledge, a new thing? Or has this just been caught now? 
So it's a publicly disclosed vulnerability now. It's been in existence for about two years. The vulnerability is called Heartbleed, and it's named such because there's a vulnerability in OpenSSL's implementations version 1.0.1, including versions A through F, that have this problem where if you send a heartbeat message to it, it's supposed to return back that message with the amount of bits that you put into it. And you could put 64 bytes worth of information into this message. So you say, this is my message. And then separately, you say, this is the size of the message I'm sending you. And then it's supposed to echo back what you sent. Much like we talked with the heap-based buffer overflows, the person can actually only put a little bit of information in there, like a byte worth of information, say, and then say, yeah, dude, I totally sent you 64K worth of information. So it will go and scrape back 64K worth of information and throw 64,000 bytes at you, which is stuff previously it had in its memory. So you tell it, hi, and it'll reply back with the rest of the last person's conversation followed by your hi. Yes. In essence, also. In essence. Dumbed down quite a bit. Exactly. And there's a whole bunch of different things that could be in that memory space. Some of the ones that are pretty obviously are going to be in that memory space are things like session keys. So you can leverage that to do session hijacking that we discussed back in the common web vulnerabilities, number two. And uh, there's also, you know, things like usernames and passwords that might exist there in clear text. And most importantly, the actual private key that's encrypting everybody's session might also be something that's returned in that. The private key is something that I talk about in the episode that I have yet to edit (laughs) around uh, public key cryptography, but it's a thing that keeps it safe. It's like the master decryption key that lets you see what anybody's setting. So if you get that and you had captured a whole slew of information beforehand that was being sent back and forth between the website, that's like the master key, the Rosetta Stone, to decipher everything. Encryption is basically a way of keeping a message secret, but it relies on the secret decoder ring called the key. And once you know the secret key, you can decrypt all the messages. I think that probably works. Goody. So it's possible to keep sending these messages for more and more back memory. And as people's sessions come and go, you could get further back and enumerate most of the system's memory. So, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. And definitely, if you're running a vulnerable version of this, you need to patch to the newest version, which is 1.0.1.g. But since the problem was only introduced two years ago, and because people really don't patch, there's lots of people who are never even affected by this vulnerability if they've got a previous version. There's another version that's um, 1.0.2 beta, which is also uh, affected by this vulnerability, but then they made a beta point two that uh, that's they solved this with. So all things said and done, there is 66% of the internet secure websites running any sort of version of this open SSL. Out of that, as of yesterday, there were 17.5% of websites that run encrypted content that were actually vulnerable to this exploit. 
And there were some pretty big sites out there that were vulnerable to this. Do we know of any of the sites or do we not want to go name calling or what? Without going name calling, there were financial aggregation sites where you go to this website and use this app and it's got all of your passwords to connect back to your various online banking sites that had this problem. There's huge open source code repositories that are vulnerable to this. So if you wanted to, say, mess with somebody's open source project and insert your own code on their behalf, like install malicious software, you could. There's a lot of systems that were allowing remote access via this method that are vulnerable to this exploit. So things like, you know, connecting from your home computer to your office computer that might have been weak to this. And then there's even the possibility for your client software, because we're talking about a client connecting to a server. So like the application that you run at home, apps that are made at home could also be compromised if you had a malicious server. So is there anything specific that end users need to do to their systems or is this exclusively server side stuff so this is a really bad problem it affects mostly servers it affects clients too if you have the ability to update your software do so i mean browsers may use open ssl especially if you're on like a linux type platform and using that you know, it's not so much affecting IE because they don't use OpenSSL. And that's the other thing is there's a bunch of different SSL type of providers out there. The, the code repositories that are commonly used by a bunch of people to make SSL work. Only OpenSSL was, was the product that was vulnerable to this. They actually made a boo-boo, inserted this code that could be attacked through the memory to release previous information in the memory. So there were a variety of fear-mongering websites that were effectively trying to list all of the big names that they thought would be affected by this. And they were mentioning massive companies like Google and Google had released their own announcements saying, look, you, your passwords are not compromised in any way. But of course these sites were saying, yeah, you should probably just change it just in case. Right. So it does you no good to change a password for a site that's still vulnerable to this. So there's becoming tools available to the public to be able to test for themselves if the websites that they go to are vulnerable. I know that LastPass as a software that protects people's passwords actually put in a feature that will test if the site that you're going to um, that, that it knows and stores your passwords to is vulnerable to this. And I'll tell you kind of when it fixed, when it's fixed. Had they put this in previously or did they just implement this? No, they just implemented this. Okay. I mean, this vulnerability is only a couple days old, right? Uh, to the public. The problem is it's existed for two years. So privately, people were probably taking advantage of this. In fact, there's an article that I'll have to link to because I can't attribute it properly. But it was brought to my attention by the EFF, which is an organization of lawyers that help to protect people's privacy and anonymity online, as well as a bunch of making sure people don't get sued for stuff that completely legitimate. So they had mentioned that there's a couple cases where people were claiming that they've captured log information of uh, people attacking them via this method. And one of them seems like hokum, but the other one seems like 
you know, at least months ago, people were actually exploiting uh, this bug. And the problem is most people aren't actually logging this type of interaction because it's very much just a, a connection protocol based thing. So without, I mean, getting too technical, it's uh, it's just a, a initial communication bit that the web server doesn't even log unless you explicitly tell it to because it's just a negotiation of sorts. Which is, sorry, the heartbeat request? Yes, the heartbeat request is a special feature. Is it a request? Is that the wrong term? Am I using the right no, terminology? No, you're using the right term. It is a request. So you say, I'm requesting that you return the heartbeat. Here's the properly formatted message. But it's actually maliciously formatted in a bad sense, where it's saying that it's going to send 64 bytes worth of information, but it only sends one. And then it gets the return back. And it's a feature of the SSL negotiation. And so this was returning back the 64 by default. No, I mean, the person specifies how much they want returned. But if you have the option of specifying 64 bytes worth, uh, 64 kilobytes worth of information, when you only send one byte, why wouldn't you? Right. So that, that was the maximum that you could request. I was just going to say that's a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy. Yeah. So that... That has been what I've been dealing with. You know, everybody, all of our customers at work want to know if we're vulnerable to this, all of our internal management, trying to get a handle on, you know, where we stand with various systems. We have a huge amount of systems because we're a large enterprise and, you know, we care about protecting people's information. So we want to do the good thing and check and know that we're protecting people's stuff. And so we're prioritizing the way that we actually deal with this. So first we look and say, okay, are we vulnerable from our internet side? So we looked at everything. We go, no, we're, we're not vulnerable. We have not been vulnerable. We can put out that message, right? And then we go and we look, okay, so what about our business to business links where we are connected to other enterprises via these private channels? That's also a, a potential problem like we saw with Target and the, the HVAC folks, right? Where potentially if they get compromised, we're already at a very high trust level that they could you know, compromise us deeply that way. So then we look at our connection to them and say, okay, our extranet, are we okay? Our DMZ, are we okay? And we start going through from the most damage that could be done to us back to the least amount of damage that could be done to us. Which makes an awful lot of sense. If you go, you start obviously with the the most risk and then move down to the least risk. And then eventually, uh, presumably you guys have third parties that you have to deal with on a regular basis. And for the most part, throughout your own software development, I'm assuming based off of rats, uh, the last episode we recorded, which is one of the episodes that are upcoming because we're superseding them all to try and bring out this timely episode, we did kind of break down or we did will kind of break down the... Uh, yeah, we, we broke the time continuum on this one. Sorry about that. That's okay. So we we did have Will broken down the development process a little bit, which is, I think it was a really fun episode. And I think that it's going to be a little bit more poignant after listening to this one, but I can't refer back to it. So, right. yeah, the yeah. just for what it's worth, the um, the issue that you mentioned before was episode 16 the credit card compromise um, episode mm -hmm. where we were talking about uh, target and how they, right. their, their external link 
was what ended up compromising them. Thanks for the reminder. I just want to throw that out in case anyone wants to try and follow up. Right. Um, And then there's one other aspect while we're talking about, you know, the priority of systems. Now that we're living in this software as a service age and cloud computing and, you know, application service providers, whatever you want to call it, you also have to consider we're not actually in control of all of our data anymore. So now when a vulnerability like this comes out, you have to go, oh, no, there's this zero day that's been out there for two years. You know, are my service providers that I'm outsourcing, you know, whatever service to my my content relationship management system, um, are they vulnerable to this? The system where we're lodging, I don't know, internal complaints against employees, are they vulnerable to this? You know, the things that so we have to have this good handle on where our information is, who we've outsourced this information to, and a method to be able to come to grips quickly if they're vulnerable to this problem as well. And if they are, what then? Potentially, if if the potential exists that the certificate protecting all of the information could have been compromised, then we need to reissue a new certificate so that the new method after it's been patched the new communications aren't going to get compromised and then potentially have to reset passwords for people as long as it's not integrated with other systems i mean it gets pretty complicated well once you start looking into that angle of things it also becomes a little bit more frightening when you start to realize the scope of information that you do not have any kind of control over you then got to think this is now a zero day and i'm using you know um radio air quotes i don't know what the proper sound for that is so i'm using radio (laughs) air quotes for that because this has been around for two years which means all of this other content that you store on any other service can become a little bit scary when you start thinking you know what If this has been around for two years and realistically, this whole storing things elsewhere has not been anywhere near as prevalent as it has been in the last two years, it's not been a massive thing with the speed of which the technology has been changing and then people adopting it um, two years ago. If you could imagine that you could store things remotely on a cloud, well, maybe five years ago. So, Within the last two years, now you've got all these things that are being remotely stored. And now you got to start thinking, okay, well, what exactly do I have remotely stored? How secure is it to potentially store things remotely? That becomes a little bit frightening. Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually the topic of the show that I kind of want to cover is how you do information security properly and, and have an information security program. Um, but before we delve into that, there's one thing that I want to touch on, which is the tinfoil hat, you know, think of the possibility of all of the the five eyes, the, the countries that work together to monitor for information warfare. Is that the right term? Information espionage. So the the NSA has stated back when the Snowden leak started that we don't actually, you know, capture anybody's information, although that was found to be a lie later on that any U.S. citizens information unless it's an encrypted message. So they've admitted off the bat that they're capturing encrypted information. Right. And then 
this problem okay, wait. is how something is that, that not seen through immediately. We're only capturing things that are encrypted. Well, how can you tell well, they're because- encrypted? Well, because we read through them all to make sure. And if they <laughs> look like they're gibberish, then we don't read or then we, we store them. But well, if we can clearly read them, then at that point, like we're we're not going to store this. We're not going to capture that. Like, come on. They're obviously really? smart enough to be able to detect that the uh, encrypted communication is starting. And then at that point, turn on the record button so that at a later point, should they need to invest the CPU cycles? This was what was thought back in the day. Should they need to invest the computing time to crack that? Well, you know, that. That means that they know for sure that must be a message that must be cracked. Well, it turns out that through this vulnerability, they could have never had an issue cracking people's encryption. So I just I just want to put that out there as a tinfoil hat. You know, what if could be past two years this problem's been out there? Well, that makes it even more impressive. So we're we're only going to keep the ones that are encrypted. But, you know, the encryption means nothing to us. Hasn't there been some sort of ongoing thing where uh, people were talking about how the NSA wanted a backdoor built into um, all of these uh, things like open SSL? Well, yes. In fact, there was a bunch of stuff around their attacking cryptography stuff. And there was the whole RSA be safe algorithm that was problematic uh, which we might have touched on in the crypto show. I don't know. That was like a month ago and we still haven't released it yet. So I have to look back at that. But yeah, I don't, I, mean, I don't look forward to that. Yes. Look forward to that. I don't really want to spend too much time talking about that, though. Okay. On to what I wanted to cover initially before this had come up is around how to develop an information security program. And I'm going to refer back to the experiences that I've been going through dealing with this hard bleed problem so that I can help flush out why it's important. So the first thing that you had mentioned is knowing where your information is. When you have a lot of different systems, that's a very difficult task, right? You have to have set out with this intent in your mind saying, okay, this is the type of information stored on this system. So you need an inventory of systems, right? You need an inventory of the applications running on the systems. You need, uh, it would be very helpful to know the versions of software running on those systems as well. So you can quickly assess, you know, is this a problem for us when this, when these vulnerabilities come out? Good. As an example, has there been problems with say a compiler? Sure. Yeah. There's, there've been problems with, uh, with compilers in the past. Okay. So as an example, then if you're running a specific system with an older compiler, that could be building problems directly into the programs that you're outputting. So just again, as an example. Absolutely. Good point. You all, so you also want to be able to have a patch management system, right? So once a vulnerability has been determined, if you only have a, a list to go against, say, okay, all of these systems are vulnerable. You want a way to quickly deploy those patches. That doesn't mean People have to work nonstop throughout the you know the weekends and all this time to to get a fix out there. You want to have this automation there. In fact, one of the most important things is having a bunch of employees that know how to automate stuff. Scripting is very important. To have a set of administrators that don't know how to script, you're probably paying these guys too much and not using their resources correctly. 
Cause you know, I'm lazy. I do, I do something three times and I think to myself, why am I wasting all of this time doing this thing manually? I should just script it and get it done. I don't like to think of it as wasting time. I like to think of it as I'm going to find a better way to do it and then take a nap while it does, <laughs> it does my job for me. Exactly. Exactly. You also need to a, a way to communicate uh, what's important to the company. So you need to talk to the management. You need to get management to back you up on this and you need to say, okay, security is important. We recognize it. It saves us money in the long run. If we do this smart stuff up front and we need to communicate also out the information security policy of what people are and aren't allowed to do, who's accountable for what, right? Not to very granular, just very macro level stuff. And then you start busting out standards and you say, okay, so for, I don't know, user authentication or user account management, you know, these are the things you have to do at a minimum, right? Because the enterprise recognizes this at, at a minimum. And then you'll get into, you know, actually configuration wise stuff, like the hardening stuff that we talked about, that would be way more granular. Like back in episode 13, we discussed the hardening. We talked about how you can stop specific programs from being installed, stop specific programs from running. Because again, when we looked back or when we looked, I don't know, I'm going to give up on time. When we looked at the credit card compromise episode, episode 16, we didn't, they did not, target the computers they targeted the software that was on it so if you allow a bunch of people to install whatever the heck they want then they can be compromising other software that's on their system as opposed to the system itself as opposed to the network itself they can be compromising specific software right that's a very astute observation matt thanks i've had a bunch of caesars (laughs) yeah and uh so you you want to have uh, a slew of standards uh, as to how systems should be configured. Uh, you, need, you need this policy. And the most important thing is having upper management back you and say, yes, this is important. Yes, we recognize that security is not one person's job to do. It's everybody's person's job. Everybody's job to do. If you can't have everybody taking advantage of it and 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 doing things right, you know, the weakest link in the chain can break the whole thing. And the same is true here. I, I can't tell you how many times there's been, you know, one person think that they're above abiding by the standards or, oh, it's just this once that I'll click on this link because maybe this really does apply to me. You know, that's caused a whole bunch of problems downstream. It's just, I mean, companies are ruined on this stuff, right? And it's this one week thing. So that brings it back down to security awareness. We've talked about it before, but it's part of the information security program. You need a way of raising the awareness to people, communicating out why it's a priority to get them invested to actually fix the problem. Then you need ways to be able to to test this and assess that what's being deployed is done securely. We've discussed that in a future episode as well. (laughs) So I'm not going to go into too much details here. Just look forward to it. There's a a bunch of other strange things you wouldn't think are related, but actually are. There's auditors. So you'll have internal auditors and external auditors come and make sure that your processes are well-defined, right? The stuff that you might need to, to give a help desk employee to make sure that they're 
actually resetting a password for a user rather than for somebody off the street calling up on the phone, right? They'll they'll look at that process, make sure that procedure's in place, and then ask people to prove that they've followed that procedure, right? That's what auditing is. It's actually looking that the maturity exists within the organization, things are documented, and then looking for proof that that documentation, those steps that are documented are actually executed against. And then you'll have the other side of that is you'll have, you know, if you're in a large organization like I'm in, you'll, you might have regulators that are requiring certain things of you. So for this heartbleed thing, you know, we're a large scale financial institution in Canada. The OSFI regulators immediately were on top of us saying, do you have a handle on this? Show us that you're actually looking at this and setting a priority for this. Sorry, the what regulators? OSFI, Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. It's a Canadian thing. It's a Canadian thing, but it's the Canadian regulators for financial institutions. They are looking at cybersecurity as a really important thing. They recognize that economies are based on trust of money, right? And they're making sure that we're doing the right things so that people can trust us. So they're they're looking at this and they go, wow, this is a really big problem. Admittedly, it is a very big problem. We were dealing with it anyways because it's a big problem, but good on them to make sure that all the banks are actually dealing with it, at least all the Canadian banks, right? So then you have the regulators making sure that you have a, a security program in place. You have uh, a governance model that's looking at uh, at this with stewardship from upper management. You have people who are looking at the, the folks who you're doing business with, so your partners, making sure that they're up to a, an adequate level of protection. You want to, you know, make sure that you're covered on all bases. And I think we've talked about a lot of this before, but it's just, it's fundamental in building this up. And then once you have like lists of your systems, so this is why it's really important. I mean, I've already talked about it with the Heartbleed thing, but it's really important to know what operating system versions you have, what's running where for a vulnerability to see where it's actually affecting you, right? Because if you don't have that list, if you don't have a complete list of what's affected, you'll have that one thing go under the radar, which could burn you, right? So you also want to be able to do vulnerability scans and say, I know that maybe I can't patch everything in the time that I want because I've got partners that are holding me back on versions of this or that. You know, they haven't been fast at updating uh, their systems to these vulnerabilities. So I want to be able to do scans of these vulnerabilities and, you know, make sure that I have a good grasp on the, the health, the hygiene of my computing environment. So from a slightly smaller scale, is there an easier, is there a way that you know of to try and... Aside from the password manager, LastPass, is there another way that you know of to try and scan just for smaller businesses or for end users or anything like that? Is there third party apps that can be trusted that they're able to use to try and determine whether these are running compromised systems or even not compromised, but ones that are still vulnerable and unpatched? Specifically for Heartbleed you're talking about? Sure. For now. So specifically for Heartbleed, because it's a big problem that came to light and the vendors who do these 
scanning softwares don't all have things available to them. Uh, the InfoSec community, being the awesome people that they are, have stepped up and developed these tools to be able to test. So just like you would go to a website and type in um, a a URL and click on the check button, there there's websites that are out there that are doing this now. There's large scale vendors that are actually out there doing this now. Uh, I know that people are doing scans of the internet. I mean, you got to assume that bad guys are doing scans of the internet too, but the good guys, there's a uh, Qualys, they do a, an external vulnerability scan software. So they're actually doing this now. There's some individuals within InfoSec community. I'll have a link in the show notes too, that are providing the service now. Ideally, Ideally, one that we can put in the show notes that you trust. We're going to put that at in-security.org slash EP019. That's where you can access the show notes for this episode, right? Right. Yeah. So, but but overall, generally, like you'll have the different components of the software that you install. So you'll have, you know, maybe if you live in a Windows world, you'll have the Windows operating system itself and all the patches that are required there. You'll have maybe the software that you install, like Office. Uh, I.e., you'll have plugins like like Flash. You'll have PDF viewers. You know, it, it all gets very complicated over thousands of machines. So you need this software to scan and make sure that the patches one are being deployed correctly, and that you have an inventory of the systems of uh, the weaknesses. And sometimes these actual vulnerability scanning softwares, they actually report back false positives. So if you're confident that you know what's actually installed on those machines, then you uh, you can actually weed out these false positives very quickly and easily. That's a really good point, the false positives. Right. So tying this back in with this, this Heartbleed vulnerability. So first thing that was released is OpenSSL is affected. Well, we know that OpenSSL affects two-thirds of the internet. So, wait, does that mean that two-thirds of the internet is vulnerable to this and is having their credentials stolen right now? And then you go, okay, wait, it actually only affects a small subset of versions that have been produced in the, in the past two years. Now, how many people are at this version number, right? Is there a reason why people might not have been at this latest version? So then you go, okay, what? We've gone from 66% down to like 17.5%. And then, you know, there's all sorts of different people running SSL on their website. How many of those are the most important sites out there? How many of those are like the most popular 1 million websites that are out there? Okay, well, now we're down to like, you know, 11% of the most popular 1 million websites that are actually vulnerable to this. Still a huge mind boggling number, right? There's like, you know, a tenth of the internet is, is weak to this and it needs to get addressed. But I mean, being able to scale it back and understand the environment a little bit better, not panic about the, the vulnerabilities that comes out is an important thing. Absolutely. Part of your information security program is also to make sure that, you know, you have segregation of duties. You have people who are specifically there to set security permissions and people who are not to do that, uh, which also we cover in a future episode. So maybe I should just stop talking about that and call it an episode. I think that was all right. We can do that. All right. So let's recap on the stuff we talked about. We talked about the Heartbleed vulnerability. We talked about security program and the components of it that are important. 
We've teased that we're going to be talking more about cryptography in the future episodes, and also that we're going to talk about more enterprise organizations and how they're structured and where security fits into that. And we yeah. also talked about XP and that people should move off of it if they have a choice, which they obviously should, because it's been known to be coming for years. That was the opening topic. So just to get back to that a little bit, as of right now, Windows 7, I think, is a much better operating system anyway. Yes, I, I've heard people don't like Windows 8 so much, Windows 8.1. Windows 9 is supposed to be coming out. If you're a Microsoft person and you're in this ecosystem, Windows 9 is supposed to be more like Windows 7, where it's more of a prosumer type of system versus the you know consumer type thing that Windows 8 was. Windows 8, I think, still gets a bad rap. But it's mostly because they tried to do something completely revolutionary. But in doing something completely revolutionary, they forgot their main target, which is my feeling for it. They moved towards building a touch enhanced interface without realizing that, you know, it's not going to drive more PC sales to start getting touch screens so that you can use it. Right. It's not going to generate as big of a change, but it does sort of unify the windows experience all across the board. If you're using either a windows machine with a touch interface or a tablet running mm. windows. Mm. So everyone's moving to windows seven now, and then maybe windows nine, who knows? I figure that windows seven has still got several years worth of support behind it. It does. It does. I know I'll be building myself a new computer in a few months. Probably I'll be looking for windows nine to put onto that. Is Windows 9 coming out that soon? It is. Well, there's a whole another episode. Let's talk about that next week, which is going to be eight weeks from now. <laughs> Very true. I'll tell you what. So we've got a bunch of really cool episodes coming up. Uh, we are going to supersede all of them with this episode to try and bring some really exciting, you know, cutting edge, bleeding edge news, heart bleeding edge news, mm. bleeding heart edge, bleeding, cutting heart news, whatever. I give up. Tell you what, buddy. Do you have anything else you want to add to this? Other than I want to wish you a very good week. Well, now I'm blushing. All right. You have yourself a great week, too.